You're listening to There Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. story i wanted to capture that's why i wanted to start well, off i've got that. it on the webcam if you want to see that wait actually, you actually have a webcam like on your dashboard i put a dash cam in just to see if i can you know well first of all i put it in because after you watch a large number of videos of crashes and the aftermath you realize at some point that a lot of people don't tell the truth about what happened before the accident a lot of kyle's out there Right, (laughs) but that was a post-crash scenario but this is the before you know a lot of people claimed that they were not at fault when they clearly were post-crash so a dash camera is one great way to resolve any uncertainty in that area hey with that listeners (laughs) welcome to a happy holidays episode of the center for auto safety podcast there ought to be a law not to be confused with the 1950s looney tunes cartoon called there ought to be a law um yeah so uh everyone survived uh it's good michael was not sideswiped by a car in on mobile bay which sounds lovely by the way is it lovely it, it is a it is a nice drive usually you know it's probably a little too much traffic than than we like but you know you're from new york you don't care the, <laughs> the, 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 the being sideswiped on a um interstate where there's a uh drop into a bay though is always a little concerning yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i don't want to do that but we avoided all contact i don't even know if the person even noticed mm. were they texting it's certainly possible i saw a lot of people doing way too much with their phones while also trying to control a, a multi-ton vehicle well maybe if uh if it was a waymo you'd be safer because uh, that's how we're going to start off. This well, I was going over 50 miles an hour. So. <laughs> no, it's not level three. Wait, Waymo's can go over. Can Waymo's go over 50 miles per hour? No, they're restricted, aren't they? I, they can go. I believe in the in the latest report, they say they're going up to 50 miles per hour in a lot of the areas they operate. So, Well, Waymo's now driven over 7 million miles. They claim only three injuries. Um, they've driven 5.3 million driverless miles in Phoenix, 1.8 in San Francisco. And again, they, we think this sounds like a lot, but this article we have in Ars Technica, uh, ends with this nice little tidbit. All the data so far suggests that Waymo vehicles are making roads in San Francisco and Phoenix at least a little bit safer. And Waymo's case gets stronger with every million miles it completes, but it's going to be another couple of years, if not longer before we can be confident about whether Waymo vehicles are helping to reduce the risk of fatal crashes. So first of all, I mean, you know, a a small round of applause to Waymo for actually sharing data and opening things up as opposed to uh, (laughs) all of their competitors (laughs) who are just a bag of dicks. Uh, Waymo's, Waymo's been kind of forthright. They're still playing that game. Hey, 7 million miles, we're safe as can be. Whereas you guys have both pointed out to me, uh, add a few hundred million miles and then we'll talk. But uh, what do you guys think? Is this, uh, you guys ready to ditch your cars and just rely on Waymo? Well, let's see. Um, if you look at the NHTSA data, it says that there is roughly one fatal accident for every hundred million miles. And that translates into one serious injury about every. 10 million miles. So Waymo says three injuries per 7 million miles. So they're only one order of magnitude away from the overall statistics for safety of uh, conventionally driven vehicles. So they're good there. I mean, kudos to them for sharing some information. But, you know, as always, the devil's in the details, right? So we've got to look at where those occurred. What are the circumstances for similar human-driven accidents or collisions? Um, uh, you know, is there a systematic flaw? Is there really something going on here? If Because to say that there's one fatal human accident for roughly every 100 million miles means that you've put together you, me, Michael, 
Um, a lot of little old ladies, along with all the drunks and drug users and really aggressive drivers. That's not an appropriate way to look at the statistics overall. So you really need to parse this information with a lot of additional information about when and how those uh, injuries occurred. I'm not saying Waymo is trying to you know, pull the wool over anybody's eyes, but you really need to look at the details of how and when and where these incidents occurred before you can say that, you know, somehow there's overall safer than the average human driver. Yeah, and I would I would encourage, you know, anyone who's interested in looking into this subject of, you know, comparing autonomous vehicles to human drivers to look at the 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 paper and the research that Google released accompanying this. So they were taking a specific look at injury crashes because they haven't had any fatality crashes yet. So they were basically comparing um, all the police reported crashes in the areas they operate, Los Angeles um, and in Arizona, San Francisco, um, to the police reported crashes in those areas. In some respects, I believe they were trying to narrow down as much as they could. But, you know, ultimately, as Fred alluded to, you know, you're comparing, you know, your best offering to, you know, the worst drivers in many cases. So just simply comparing this vehicle's performance or this system's performance to the human uh, crash rate doesn't really get us to where we're saying that this vehicle is as good or better than, you know, a train human who's not speeding, not drunk, yada, yada. Um, it's, it's, it's still a little unclear just how much safer the Waymo would be than me or than Fred or than Anthony or than, you know, the guy off the street. Um, so it's, you know, versus how good it is compared to, you know, teenagers stealing Hyundais, people running from the police and people who just came out of a bar. So there's, and then part of that really isn't due to the fact that Waymo is trying not to show us that. It's because those those data aren't really available. It's really difficult to parse this stuff out. And when you look at their paper, they go through a lot of that and they they make a lot of really good explanations and, you know, kind of open up how difficult it is to arrive at these decisions. And, you know, even when you've gotten the numbers in front of you, you know, you still have that underlying question of you know how safe is safe enough before we can actually pop these things out onto roads across america expand our services so there's still a lot of considerations um that come even after you have gotten your numbers lined up and to geek out even a little more i i know you guys find it unusual for me to geek out but there's something called granularity of data that is important in this case there's very few samples happily, of injuries that involve the Waymo vehicles, and, and good for them. But let me put it in perspective, okay? If you take out a penny from your pocket and you flip it and it lands on the table, it's likely to be either heads or tails, right? So if you, you flip it and you let's say it comes up heads, you take it out of your pocket and you flip it again and it comes up heads again. Well, you could come to the conclusion that every time you flip that pen, that uh, penny, it's going to come up heads, right? So you test the hypothesis, and you flip it again, it comes up heads again. Well, now you got great data. This says three times in a row, I flipped this coin, it's going to come up heads. You're ready to go to Atlantic City and you know put your money down because you've got a trend going, right? The That's problem math is that if you flip that penny a million times, you're going to find that the average is very close to 50%. And so that's how confidence, statistical confidence builds up. So the problem that Waymo's got is that the numbers of vehicles involved in this, numbers of incidents involved in this, is very, very small compared to the overall population. So it's going to be a long time before they accumulate enough information the flips of the coin, if you will, to say that what, you know, what really is the number that's associated with the long-term use of these vehicles. It's a statistical, and it's not a slam on Waymo. It's just a statistical inference that they might make based on these data 
that is really not justified based on the small number of samples that they've got at hand. Okay, so we need a lot more data. And also what I thought was a glaring error in Waymo's safety data was there was no mention whatsoever, and we heard about it here from a guest a couple of weeks ago, that Waymo may try to steal your girlfriend. I mean, why isn't that in their reports? I mean... Well, again, oh. statistical sampling is, is you know, there's just not that many instances. Well, that we know about, that have been police reported at least. No. You know, well, Fair we'll enough. see. Okay. <laughs> uh, moving on to another car that... Uh, it's a uh, is surprising that it's uh, out there is the Chevy Blazer EV. Now, I mean, Chevy made a very cool small EV, and it's not that small. But well, no, 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 the ahead. original, no, not the Blazer, the 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 Bolt. Oh, okay, right, okay, the Bolt. Like it was, you know, small. Like every reviewer, all these super car geeks were like, "This thing's awesome. I would love to have it for myself." Me as a consumer, I'm looking and I'm like, how long does this thing take to charge? Because it was ridiculous. But apparently as a commuter car, it was great. So GM did what GM does. And they're like, hey, people like this. Let's get rid of it. Let's replace it with this thing called the Blazer EV, which is, you know, it's a SUV style thing. And uh, it's not good. Edmonds is basically saying it's had a, it's had 23 fault codes on its diagnostic test since they've had for, had it for two months. Yeah, a writer at Inside EVs whose week-long test ended after 28 hours. The vehicle's um, infotainment system went blank while he was driving, and then an attempt to charge the battery failed, producing a service vehicle soon error message. That's never a service vehicle soon? Like, oh, just... No, I mean, basically, right now, that vehicle qualified. Edmonds could take that vehicle back to the GM dealer. It qualifies under the California Lemon Law, where they receive, receive delivery of it, right, and get their refund. Um, and that's quick, but it's, it's. I mean, in California, you know, there are a lot of ways to qualify for the Lemon Law. It would be, you know, one safety issue, which I think if you read that list of faults, it's pretty clear the vehicle has a safety issue that's uncorrected um and yeah hasn't been able to be repaired for two weeks which is you know as long as that vehicle's been in the dealership uncorrected and it just looks like a you know edmund said it was you know the longest list of faults they'd ever seen on a vehicle um so you know either you know Either at the, at this point, you're thinking either GM, you know, gave them a bad vehicle or, you know, the, the EV Blazer is a hot mess. Well, they suspended production of the EV Blazer uh, as well. So that probably tells you that there's a lot they need to work on. It looked like a lot centered around the infotainment system, but all of those faults were, or many of those faults were related to communications with, you know, engine and, and other safety related parts of the car. How does its backup camera perform? Backup camera, okay. I didn't see a fault on the backup camera, but the infotainment screen didn't come up, uh, as Edmonds noted, during large portions of its drives, um, even right after the vehicle started. So I'm assuming that would include the backup camera, which is you know one of our leading causes of a recall. Well, uh, Chevrolet Vice President Scott Bell said, we are aware that a limited number of customers have experienced software-related quality issues with their Blazer EV. Customer satisfaction is our priority, and as such, we will take a brief pause on new deliveries. Well, ha having it as a priority doesn't mean it's a top priority, does it? <laughs> I thought, we're just going to take a brief pause. Okay, everyone think about it. Okay, everyone go into your safe space here uh, and breathe. And uh, let's go on to sell a larger, stupider car. Yeah. Well, I mean, what are you going to do in an America where 80% of your buyers are looking for an SUV and not a sedan? I mean, are you just going to ignore that or are you going to fill that market? Well, at least, you know, make one that works, you know, at yeah. least like normally when they supply vehicles to journalists, like they go over them with like a toothbrush and, and a fine tooth comb. And this one was like, hey, it's 28 default messages. That's better than last week. Last week was 37. So it's pretty good. Get it out there. You know, what does Edmonds know? Well, you know. Well, again, uh, granularity. GM would say, well, this is just a, this is just a bad penny flip. Uh, um, in the future, pennies. everything will be better. <laughs> Maybe not for GM. Uh, Toyota, this is a surprising one. So Toyota has a small division called Daihatsu. Um, and Toyota 
you know, it's, they make pretty good cars, right? Fair to say they make cars of really good reliability. Yeah, I believe they were number one in quality in Consumer Reports yeah. recently. Yeah, I think they've been that way for decades. Like, you know, they, they do well in crash tests. They, they're they well done. But they have this small division called Daihatsu that makes uh, small cars and trucks and primarily in Japan. Uh, and they've been uh, submitting bogus safety tests. Taihatsu's probe found 174 new cases of irregularities in safety tests and other procedures in 25 test categories on top of problems reported earlier. Uh, they have reported improper testing on door linings, proper problems in side collision testing, data falsification, and unauthorized and use of unauthorized testing procedures. Uh, speaking to reporters last week, Daihatsu president not going to try to pronounce the name, acknowledged the cheating on safety testing and procedures, saying it was tantamount to neglect of safety certificates. He attributed the problems to pressure on workers to meet ambitious demands for tight development deadlines. So, hey, you know, we got to hit those production numbers. People are going to die. Have a nice day. Yeah, that's a it's a huge safety scandal. I don't believe, and from everything I can tell, there aren't, any vehicles that have been sold in the United States that this applies to, um, mainly because of something I was just talking about. Daihatsu typically makes really small pickups in cars, and nobody in America wants to buy those right now. Um, but what they're what what they've done in a couple of cases is, you know, not just yes, falsifying side impact crash test results. It looked like and and measurements they were taking. I, I think one. One of the reports I read mentioned that they basically took the results from one side of the vehicle and flopped them onto the other side and reversed it to make it look like they had tested that side. So there's clearly some type of money-saving operation going on in Daihatsu in Japan to try to you know limit the number of tests they're having to conduct, basically limit their research budget. They're not doing their... Uh, due diligence on safety period and you know if they had done that in the united states where we're typically looking at recalls and such you know it would be a huge issue and NHTSA would be all over them because they would basically be um violating the NHTSA certification regulations you know you can't even though you're signing a form that says we've certified everything, if in fact you haven't certified everything, then you're subject to some pretty severe penalties for lying effectively, which is what Daihatsu is doing in this case. So they have, you know, issued giant apologies and covered their website with them and produced a, a report on the matter. And, you know, this is going to be something that impacts a lot of vehicles in Japan, but since Daihatsu, I believe the last, they, they did manufacture cars in America from, I believe they, they sold two models in America from 1998 to nine, or 1988 to 1992. Um, one of them was called the Charade, which is probably <laughs> appropriate. Um, but those did not catch on in, in, in the United States at all. And they, they left town in, in 92. So this yeah. would not apply to those vehicles. It looks like this is the, the more modern, small trucks, small SUVs, and the types of vehicles. A few Toyota models that are sold primarily in Japan, Indonesia, and the Asian market. There's There may be a cultural issue at work here. Um, I had some experience working with Japanese manufacturing. And Toyota bought Daihatsu, so it's not an organic part of Toyota. In the in Japanese culture, it's uh, typically very, I don't know how to say this exactly, but it's very much on a trust basis. So if you give your supplier a requirement, uh, you assume that what is delivered will be in conformance with those requirements. They very, very rarely will go into a, a supplier and do an audit of the supplier to find out exactly what's happening and how that's done. It's it's all assumed to be on the basis of the honor of the su supplier, and you know that yes, of course, they're going to do exactly what's required. And no, they don't have to have a step by step procedure that is going to provide the kind of quality you're looking for because I'm trusting the provider to do what they said they're going to do. So. I'm not sure how this fits into that, but there may be a cultural problem at the heart of this that Daihatsu was struggling and somebody there 
just let the ball drop and Toyota, for cultural reasons, never had the presence in the supplier to really detect that was happening until it became apparent in the public use of these vehicles. So it, it is a different culture over there. And when they do purchase a supplier, from the American perspective, you've got to be very careful about what's coming out of that supply chain because there may be hidden defects that are pushed behind that wall of trust that the suppliers typically have with their customers. That's interesting to me that that wall of trust still remains, you know, eight years after we saw what happened with Takata um, and right. all of the fallout over there. <clears throat> but, you know, just generally from, from a safety perspective, I would say that you should never trust your suppliers and you should be testing and retesting everything you get from them. I and mean, we see so many recalls because of suppliers that were outside of specifications or who didn't follow proper procedures, were cutting corners um to make a buck and you know i think it's the trust system doesn't really work you know as you move into you know a software controlled vehicle where you need to be validating every step that every of every you know type of software component that a supplier is putting in a vehicle it seems like a really bad system to use in the future <laughs> no argument for me yeah trust but verify and good luck figuring out a way to verify this ai software have a nice well, day. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking about having a nice day, Consumer Reports, those bunch of liberals. Uh, so, you know, Tesla had a recall. Yes, it was a recall. It was a recall because NHTSA called it a recall. And Tesla even says, hey, we had a recall of all their vehicles. And so Consumer Reports uh, says, yeah, that's not, that's not enough. Uh, Kelly Funkhauser, the nonprofit's organization's associate director of vehicle technology and person with possibly the coolest name in this industry, tells TechCrunch she discovered it's still possible to cover the cabin camera while using autopilot, meaning drivers can neutralize one of the two main ways the car monitors if they're paying attention to the road. Oh, my God. What's more, Funkhauser said she did not notice any difference when activating, activating or using autopilot's flagship feature, auto steer, outside of the controlled access highways where Tesla says the software is designed to be used. So wasn't this recall to be like, hey, I'll part of the recall say, hey, we're uh, essentially setting up an operating design domain. <laughs> I pay attention. No, no. Ah, damn it. Okay, not, it wasn't. It wasn't what they said at all. Well, nah, they they the alluded current. to putting additional restrictions. Well, they said they were going to put additional restrictions on the engagement of auto steer on um non on basically on interstates limit controlled access highways they only want it used there so if you're off of one they want to limit uh the engagement of the feature we think the best way to do that is by geofencing hey your vehicle is clearly based on gps not on a controlled access highway you can't turn it on well tesla thinks their little camera and their ai can figure all this out without a map so they put um, a system into place where the vehicle is supposed to recognize where it is somehow. We're still not even sure how. Um, just like you just said, ask the AI. Well, it's not giving us any answers. Um, so they've put this system into place. They apparently have done a software update, and you know Kelly hops in the car to test it out. And you know, if you can disable your in-car driver monitoring system, you know the same way you disable the camera on your laptop with a post-it note or by covering it, it's not working. You know, you, you, you've got to, you know, figure a way around that problem, Tesla. You've got to be able to monitor with the camera. You can't just cover it up and let drivers do whatever they want. Yeah, doesn't um, everyone else's cam interior camera, doesn't it, like, do eye tracking to see that you're actually paying attention to you the You can't operate like the Ford and the uh, Ford's the um, Blue Cruise and the GM Super Cruise if you're blocking the camera monitoring system. It's right. not going to let you because they're not stupid. Um, <laughs> and I don't understand yeah. why Tesla can't just get with the program and geofence the feature. It would solve everyone. It would make everyone's life easier. Um, you don't understand why? Come on, Michael. <laughs> they're, they're, doing, they're doing what they what they're doing because they can. There's no standards. There's nothing from NHTSA that says you have to do well, things a certain way. Well, and not really forcing them here, right? They've been negotiating with them and negotiating with them. We've seen this go on and this investigation drag out. And it's like, 
Come on, Nitsa. When are you going to jump on top of Tesla the way you're jumping on top of, you know, ARC over their airbags where there are far fewer incidents involved and and far more uh, airbags than there are Teslas in the room? There's clearly a big issue here, and you guys are not pushing them hard enough to do it. Whether Maybe that's because Tesla has great lawyers and they're paying them billions of dollars to support this case, but... It's pretty clear that if you come in and with a recall, you say you're going to do something, you better do it. Um, and, or, you know, or, or is it going to be another three or four years of negotiation with more crashes and more people die and more injuries before NHTSA actually makes Tesla do something about this? It's just been kind of a long, disappointing saga for us to watch. And at the end of it, you see a recall. The update's already out, and the update isn't even really doing what it says it's going to do. It's, you know, hugely disappointing, and I hope NHTSA follows up here and conducts a recall query, an audit query of this recall, and goes back and, you know, forces Tesla, if necessary, to put in a system that actually works to prevent drivers from disengaging and to ensure that when drivers are operating this technology that they're paying attention. Paying attention and driving? Come on, what's wrong with you? Oh, the Mississippi's not strong in him anymore. Uh, let's continue with some uh, Tesla. So I think we've talked about something like this before, where is an article we have in from CNBC, where is, uh, it's titled, Tesla blamed drivers for failures of parts it, it long knew were defective. So this is uh, one of uh, Tesla's key moves is, hey, your car's messed up, it's your fault. Uh, the article uh, talks about someone here who's uh, who bought a car with only 115 miles on the odometer, uh, it suddenly lost steering control as he made a slow turn into their neighborhood. The vehicle's front right suspension had collapsed and parts of the car loudly, loudly scraped on the road as it came to a stop. The complex re repair required nearly 40 hours of labor to rebuild the suspension and replace the steering column, among other fixes, according to a detailed repair estimate. The cost, more than $14,000. Tesla refused to cover the repairs, blaming the accident on prior suspension damage. Now, in 114 115 miles, I I'm sorry. Uh how much suspension damage can you do? I mean, well, if you work hard at it, you can uh, do a lot. Okay. But, yeah, that's all. Yeah. That's a, okay. Yeah, yeah. Come on, yeah. Anthony. But come on, this is <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is you know, this was somebody who like really excited to buy their first electric car. Oh my God, use a ton of family savings. We were, quote, over the moon. This is bought by an electronics engineer. So, you know, they're not going, hey, let's go off-roading. Or maybe they were. I mean, he was driving with his wife and his three-year-old. So I don't, I mean, he, he uh, could be. You know how engineers are. They never read the instruction manual. Uh, that's they true. Just, they just assume that if they get into a car, they know how to drive the car. I mean, have you ever rented a car and read the instruction manual? I think not. Uh, no, I, it's not my car. I like to bring it back, and they go, wait, what's that? And I go, ha, ha, American Express is paying for the insurance damage. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, I'm not paying for it. Sorry, that's my personal experience. I mean, this suspension issue is something we've heard most, suspension steering problems, something we've heard you know, most often from consumers over and over again for many years now about Tesla's. There was even a um, – NHTSA's complaint database got invaded by some Australian guy who was filing complaints vehicles he found on the internet and junkyards um and kind of polluted the the, the nits complaint data on this for a while uh, about three or four years ago so it's been a kind of a um an important issue for tesla to address and the way they've gone about it like some of the examples you see in this article doesn't appear to be the greatest customer service and seems to be kind of a, a heavy handed approach to owners who are experiencing you know a common problem um, it would be really interesting to see NHTSA do an investigation here and figure out, you know, how many repairs Tesla has made across its fleet on these suspension issues and also look into whether they've, you know, what kind of changes they've made in the designs over the years as because it, this appears to be affecting a large percentage of the, the fleet of Teslas that's out there and whether it's build quality or design issue is still somewhat unclear. Yeah, Tesla has blamed frequent failures of several parts on the Tesla owners themselves, alleging they abused the cars. This car was a lovely car when it left our factory, and you're just bad people who 
managed to scrape together what fifty thousand dollars to start, and then you know you're abusing it. Uh, I mean, that's like that's basically the starting point when you're arguing over some kind of defect with most dealers. Anyway, it's it they are invariably you know, looking for evidence of misuse, you know, it's the first thing that comes up when your engine goes bad. Yep. Let's see a list of all of your oil changes, you know? So it's, it's a common approach for a dealer to say, well, you need to show, you, you know, we're going to blame this on you and you have to make an affirmative showing that you haven't abused the vehicle, which is probably not the best approach for someone who's only had the car for 115 miles, but, um, yeah, this I, is less I, than 24 hours. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, from the article, the automaker told him the suspension collapse was caused by the separation of a lower control arm from the steering knuckle, which connects to the wheel assembly. Uh, you know, the owner expected Tesla to cover the damage and Tesla is like, nah, suck it. Which is. And that uh, sounds like a manufacturing problem. Does that qualify as a lemon? Yeah, that would be one severe safety issue um, right there. Hey, was it California? Uh, they might have been Massachusetts, I think. This was. Massachusetts might have that yeah. way. Oh, oh no, this oh, is, there's sorry, a sprinkling Cambridge, of states England. that allow you. This was Cambridge, England. This one, oh, they don't have a lemon law in England or a First uh, Amendment. Boo, England. Okay. Um, but hey, if you live in another state and you're like, wait, my Tesla's falling apart, and you should go to autosafety.org and click on lemon laws. You read all about your lemon laws, lemon laws. And then when you're like, I've had enough lemon, click on donate because it's the end of the year and now's the time to do it. Mm, donations. Blah, blah. Michael, how many states uh, have lemon laws and what was the Center for Auto Safety's participation in getting that done? So every state and the District of Columbia now have lemon laws. Um, you know, the effectiveness of those laws varies greatly. You know, we see some states with great lemon laws that are really helpful for consumers like California versus states, I believe Illinois comes to mind, who just don't have the types of protections we're looking for. You know, we basically a lemon law, we'd love to see. If you have a safety issue that the manufacturer can't identify or that requires your vehicle to sit like the Edmonds Blazer in the shop for two weeks to a month and they still have no idea what's going on, you need to be getting a new car. I mean, it's it's it. There's no reason for someone to put you know a huge down payment in and be subject to a, a multi hundred dollar. Uh, monthly fee for a vehicle that's sitting at the dealer unable to be repaired. So that was the intent of the lemon laws. And we, the first lemon law, I believe, was passed in the 80s. And the center was heavily involved in promoting lemon laws across all 50 states as one by one, the states began passing lemon laws to protect consumers. Because up until that point, you know, you literally had to rely on, you know, some a, a, a wide variety of state warranty laws, if they existed or not, that your protections were really, um, you, you didn't really have a lot of protections when it came to buying a new car and, and you had a, a multiple problems with it. So lemon laws, typically, the typical way you'll see that people qualify for them is they'll have the same problem come up three, two, three, four times, and the dealer is attempting to repair it, and each time they fail and the problem continues to reoccur. Uh, but then you have a smattering of states where there are about, you know, I would say probably 15 to 20 states, that's just right off the top of my head, I could be wrong, that have a uh, safety issue. So if you have a safety problem in the vehicle, then it is, and, and it can't be repaired, well, then it's an automatic lemon because you shouldn't be, you know, allowing a consumer to drive a vehicle off your lot with a safety issue. So kind of a common sense law, but something I think more states should put into play. Um, but that said, depending on where you live and or where you buy the vehicle in some cases or where it's registered, you know, you could have a great lemon law in your state or you could have one that's completely ineffective. And so despite the fact that there is one in every state, there's still a lot of work to be done to make sure that all of them are fair. So, hey, if you're looking for a reason, wait, why should I donate to you guys? Lemon laws. You're welcome. OK, another reason. Lemon chiffon cake. Anyone who donates from now to the end of the year, I will eat lemon chiffon cake. I'm not really sure what it is. It sounds delicious. And hey, how about this for a third reason to donate? Have you met Fred Perkins? Have you? 
I mean, I have it in person physically, but I see him every week. Uh, how about the towel of Fred? How will we do that? And uh, he'll deep dive us on arc submission from automaker techs and, and all sorts of qualifications around that. How does You've that sound? You've now entered the Dow That sounds Fred. good. Um, I think that the people who do know me have already checked out, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll catch the rest of these people. So uh, um, ARC, one of our favorite companies, and a lot of other companies responded to NHTSA concerning the ARC airbag inflator problems that uh, have been discussed earlier. The problem with those ARC airbag inflators is that they occasionally explode. And ARC is trying to determine through, oh, blowing a lot of smoke, that it's really not a problem and nothing to see here, folks. Why don't you just move on? So... NHTSA has collected comments from not only ARC, but a lot of other companies. And what the heart of this is actually discussed on page 11. <clears throat> I'm going to read this. It'll put you to sleep, but it's not long. So it says the relevant LAT for NHTSA's investigation involves ballistic testing, typically at various temperatures, i.e. hot, ambient, cold. These tests can be performed in various amounts at various frequencies or at different frequencies across periods of time depending on customer requirements set as appropriate for the particular implementation in the end vehicle and other factors present during a particular period of production. For example, a new model launch may involve more testing at startup than stable production. According to information in the confidential file, these tests were performed at ARC since production began and were deemed successful. It's worth noting that where issues were identified in LAT, the process at ARC involved yada, yada, yada. What, what is okay. LAT? LA, I'm glad you asked. I was just circling back to that. LAT stands for Lot Acceptance Test. Now, when components are developed for industry and military use, they go through a two-stage process. Uh, essentially, there is something called a qualification, where you test the you test the device in a lot of challenging circumstances to make sure that it actually will uh, do its job over the long term. Lot acceptance test is done with every group of these devices that you manufacture to make sure that they are consistent with the design that you put forward and uh, tested in the qualification test. So the qualification test is a higher level test. It's more yeah. severe. Lot acceptance test is done more frequently is less severe. So there's a lot of, of landmines in this statement that I just read. For example, it says um, that the testing is done at various frequencies or different frequencies across periods of time depending on customer requirements. Well, who who are the customers setting these requirements? And why is NHTSA making sure that the customer requirements are consistent with personal safety? That's not happening, right? There is no NHTSA requirement that says all of these customer requirements must meet at least this minimum standard for safety. So whatever the hell a customer says they want to do is what these customers are testing to. It's so, or so what the these suppliers are, are testing to. The, the customers are the, the vehicle OEM, so the Ford, right. the Honda, the Toyota. Okay, yeah. and so when they buy an airbag, like what level of detail they are they asking for? They're kind of like, Nobody hey, I Nobody knows. Want... Nobody oh. knows. They're yeah, all published. we know is that there were about 40 different levels of detail that were asked for. So amongst this population of ARC airbags, of 50 million airbags, there are about... 40 different types of inflators, even though the inflators kind of fall into two main branches or two main designs, the designs differ from that level down. And, you know, there are about 40 different implementations. So the, 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 it, these folks say that you can't really conclude that a safety defect exists in the subject inflators because there are so many different types here. Um, I'm not sure if that argument flies or not. See, oh, no, I, that's pure bullshit. 
Because I guess um, a consumer perspective, I'm thinking of like an airbag as being like, oh, I need an Ethernet cable. Like, it's just kind of like, I just, I need this long. That's what I need. Great. Done. Like, I don't well, think about it if your Ethernet again. cable were filled with energetic material that needed to blow up every time you use the internet, well, yeah, that would be similar. That would be but different. <laughs> but would be, no, I mean, like, what I'm trying to say Typically, those cables don't blow up. True. Well, I'm thinking of, like, it's just kind of, it's just something like, oh, yeah, I need this part. Like, it's, I need it. Yeah, I'm possibly thinking about it way too simplistically. Obviously, I am. But I'm like, hey, I need a driver's side airbag that fits in the steering column. Um, hey, it'd be funny if when it pops out, a little jack-in-the-box face comes with it, too. No, we can't do that. But so you're just no assuming safe functionality in a way. Of course. It's right. an airbag. I'm not assuming, uh, like, it's. I'm not expecting it to be a jack-in-the-box to pop up my face with a knife and, and a gun. You know, I'm expecting right. it to be, yeah, It's. it seems self-explanatory but uh, apparently i am naive oh you are and it's, oh, it's a charming God. part of you so you know we <laughs> we like that but um you know again parsing this information depending on customer requirements well what is a customer requiring okay it's different for different uh different for different applications and then it says according to information in the confidential file the tests were performed since production began and were deemed a lot of acceptance tests were performed since production began and were deemed successful. Well, what are the criteria you're using for a successful lot acceptance test? Um, you know, if, if <laughs> and then it goes on to say on page 12, according to ARC, beyond their inline process controls and quality checks, in the case of a lot acceptance test abnormality, the production lot is held for further investigation and the lot is potentially scrapped depending on the results of the investigation. Boy, a lot of weasel words in that one, huh? Yeah. So, you know, we've 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 built some and we found one that's really junky. And so, yeah, maybe we'll scrap them, maybe we won't. So let me let me contrast that with the standard that's used for industrial and military use. Now there's a standard called Mill Standard 322. Uh, this is freely available on the internet, and uh, as a helpful hint to NHTSA, you can use something called the internet and a search engine to find it. 1.1, um, general, the standard has a twofold purpose, establishing tests and procedures where electrically initiated explosive components, like airbag inflators, must pass, as well as characterizing electro-explosive device EED designs. Is that so hard? Why can't NHTSA do the same damn thing? Because we're talking about people dying here. I uh, assume they did. They did not. Mm. You're charming. <laughs> okay, 1.2 application. This standard applies to electrically initiated electric explosive components prior to completion of development. Again, what's, oh, what is hard to understand about this? Before you put these things out in the street, check them to make sure that you know you, they're done. So what are the criteria that is used by this military standard? Well, it says uh, the reliability of functioning for the samples shall be at least 0.99 with an 85% confidence level when tested at a predetermined all-fire input. The criterion for passing the test is that no more than one failure occurs or no more than one sample fails to meet the output requirement when testing 385 samples or the 230 consecutive samples function without a failure. So they give the opening to say one of them didn't work, but they tell you what you have to do to pass if one of them doesn't work. And they have a specific number that you have to test. There's a specific number, and that's based upon the statistics of what it right. takes to get to that level of reliability with the 85% confidence level. Now, to remind people, what that confidence level means is that if you were to conduct this test many times, you would find um, that 85% of the time in that test series, you ended up with 99% reliability. Okay, so it's it's like flipping that penny again. Okay, uh, if 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 you don't get the result, you if you flip it a million times, you're going to come up with 50% uh, reliability of head versus tails. If you flip it 10 times. You're not going to have that. You'll have some other number because, you know, there's the granularity of the data. 
right? As we said, if you flip it three times and come up with heads every time, you're going to say, I got a 100% chance of getting heads, but that's going to fall apart as you get to more and more samples. So that's what the, that's what that confidence number is all about. How well have you really done the test? How how do you know that in the future, if you did the test over, you would get the same kind of results? So what are the, again, what are the criteria that they use as part of their lot acceptance testing and qualification testing? They are high temperature storage, functional tests at extreme temperatures, sensitivity to static electricity, jolt, which is uh, a sudden acceleration, a 12-meter drop, transportation vibration, thermal shock, temperature and humidity, and they cite the standards used for that, a high-frequency vibration, and waterproofness. Now, we've, we've, we know that airbag failures in the automotive industry are accelerated by their exposure to humidity and thermal cycles, right? So at least, you know, for the last 25 years, according to this mill standard 322, people have known about this. People know how to build these things. The manufacturers who are building these inflators in all their various sizes and shapes have been working in the military environment for years and years. They know all about this. This is not a this is not news to them. Hey, so Fred, why is on that standard real quick? Would would the GM Hummers, the Hummer or the AMC Hummers that are built for military applications be required to meet an airbag standard, a military airbag standard versus I don't know the answer to that, uh, but I assume uh, but they could be I, contracted out, but I I just wonder if that comes into play at all. Yeah, well, I'd have to go back to Mill 82 and, and the specific circumstance. So I don't know the answer to that. If it, if it were a standard military application, yes, it would. Um, but I don't know if the military includes passenger airbags. airbags. Right. I'm, I, I, I know that. they're probably not required because the vehicle it could be an be exception. Over, yeah, over a certain weight. But it's interesting to wonder. So I don't know the answer. But my point is only that this information's out there. And it's, uh, again, Mill Standard 322. Look it up, read it, use that as the basis for criteria that are required to preserve the safety of the 300 million Americans who are driving these damn cars. This is not rocket science, folks. This is quality control. Um, we know how to do qualification tests on these devices. We know how to do lot acceptance tests. We know how to do all this stuff. We just need the government to stand up and say, you can no longer put explosive, lethal junk in the airbags that are three feet away from people's faces. You have to use these criteria to make sure that they're safe. And these criteria exist. They're well understood by the industry. Um, I'm just mystified and chagrined that the government has not stepped up to, if not this standard, then at least put some standard in place that says this is what's required as the minimum standard for safety of these explosive lethal devices that surround everybody in the car. They're also very life-saving devices at the same time, so there's a lot of tension going on there. Yeah, so... <laughs> Oh. I mean, it, it despite, I would expect that of the 50 million inflators that ARC built, there have been far more lives saved and injury prevented by them than have been damaged as a result of the defect, which is... I think that's that's on. absolutely right. And what NHTSA is really going after there, I think, is a safe airbag. I mean, we've had a history with airbags where we know they're saving more lives than than not. And we, we know they're making a profound impact. But, you know, we've had the um, problems with airbag inflate or the airbags hurting children, small women in the 80s, 90s, where we had to have some, you know, get some sensors into the cars to detect people, to make sure that airbags aren't deploying, you know, and 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 hurting people. Um, and now we're having somewhat a kind of a rehash of that with these electro explosive problems with Takata and with ARC. Um, and so I think NHTSA just wants, you know, to have to have an Anthony airbag, I'd call it one that you don't have to worry about its safety at all. It just fits in your steering wheel and goes. 
Yes, the Anthony Airbag, brought to you by Galoob. Mm-hmm. Do you want to crash? Do you want to live? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Get the Anthony Airbag, available for purchase online. Hey, remember earlier in this episode, we talked about Daihatsu yes. and the quality problems because perhaps Toyota never looked deeply into what Daihatsu was doing. That's a very similar problem. Okay, Nissan needs to look into these airbag manufacturers, set standards for them, and then force the manufacturers to subscribe to those standards. It's a very simple step. It'll take them about a week and a half to do the engineering on this, and then uh, however long it takes to get the process done. But boy, is this a is this a huge gap? Well, we're gonna have a for our listeners at NHTSA, we're gonna have a link to mill spec. 322. 322. I was looking at it right there. All right. I found a link to it. That'd be great. So you donate, then you go drink a little drink a little coffee, and then you then you read mill spec standard 322. Oh boy, oh boy. You may need some eggnog with that one. Well, you know, are you suggesting people drink and drive? Because I'm not. No, they're reading military. Oh. They shouldn't be driving at the same time either, for sure. Well, even in my Mercedes level three driving car? No, we shouldn't be doing that either. But here we're going to change we're gonna change uh, tone a little bit and talk about uh, what kind of uh, cars people like to drive drunken. Yeah, that's right. They collect data on this. There's an article we have linked to from Jalopnik titled DUI Offenders Drive These Brands the Most. Okay, so I don't know if you guys look. Yeah, at this, I mean, I have number? one oh. take on this that whole oh. article, and it are you, is. Are you being upset because your vehicle's number one? No, my vehicle <laughs> was actually number 10. You're reading the article backwards. Oh, sorry. <laughs> number one is, you know, just something that you would expect. It is BMW drivers, and they were almost double. Huh. Literally almost double the rate of their nearest competitors. So BMW people, you know, we already know that most of you are assholes. Don't be drunk Aww. assholes too. <laughs> Except for you, my next door neighbor, you're great. <laughs> yeah, BMW with a staggering 3.13 DUIs per driver. Oh my God. Not per driver. That's what it says right? there with a staggering <laughs> per driver. That, that's their phrasing. Uh, they're far more likely to be driving under the influence compared to the general population. Last year, a highway trooper in Florida had to put her cruiser in the path of a BMW 335i hurling towards a 10 uh, 10K foot race. Wow. But hey, number uh, 10 on the list was Volkswagen. Surprise, surprise. Uh, let's see. Uh, hey, uh, you know, Subaru well, uh, doesn't... Oh, let me Subaru. Just, let me just Subaru jump in for a second because yep. yeah. I want to report that I one time saw a BMW on an interstate highway. It was in um, Maryland, actually, the interstate highway between Washington and Baltimore. I saw a BMW being driven at the speed limit. It was a remarkable <laughs> thing. <laughs> and it was about 10 years ago. It was, uh, it, you know, it really sticks to my mind. And in fact, the other thing that sticks to my mind about that, we were talking about coin flips earlier, is that I was once in a friendly restaurant on West Housatonic Street, Pittsfield, Massachusetts, with a friend and from high school named Kim Lovejoy. <clears throat> and we and we flipped a coin to see who was going to leave a tip. And the coin landed on its edge, a penny. It was, it was a remarkable thing. I never expect to see that again, similar to the fact that I never again expect to see a BMW driving at the speed limit. These are great. Coin flip stories. I don't think I've seen a coin in a decade, but no, I'm glad that you lived inside of a Twilight Zone episode briefly. No, you can flip your credit card. It'll work out the same way. <laughs> um, yeah, so Subaru makes the list. They are uh, surprisingly a third among uh, Amer- their, their language in the article is very poorly written, uh, but I will I will repeat their their confusing phrasing. Subaru is surprisingly third among a sea of American automakers with 1.45 DUIs per 1,000 drivers. Subaru is not an American automaker. Uh, but hey, but you know, my uh, my vehicle of choice does not make the list. So, um, you know, they just haven't caught me yet. <laughs> Eggnog in the trunk, straw to my mouth. I don't know what I'm saying. Hey, you guys want to do some recalls? Let's do some recalls. There's some big ones. There are some. And okay, look, I'm going to start. I'm going to. This one here personally affected me. I was, I read about it when it came out and I was like, oh my God, is this me? This is Toyota. 
Toyota recalls certain 2020 to 2022 Toyota and Lexus vehicles. And this is an airbag-related issue. It's the sensor in the front passenger seat could have been improperly manufactured, causing a short, short circuit, so it would not operate. And so this morning, I was like, I have a 2020 Toyota. Oh, my God. My model's among the list. And I did my VIN check. Well, I didn't use the VIN. I used the license plate. And I don't have a recall. Hey! Hey, guess what, Anthony? They don't Mazel update off. that for a few days. What? I yeah, you're going to have to go back. Oh. Yeah. Well, see, what they do first is they announce the recall because they're required to announce that within a certain amount of time of determining there's a defect. But that information and the VIN numbers that it apply to don't get uploaded into the NHTSA database for at least a couple of weeks. I'm not sure the exact timing of that. When I searched um, on Toyota's database... Toyota announced you, you may want to search again in a few weeks oh. just to be sure. Well, they list the, they, I might be okay because it lists the Corolla and I have the Corolla hatchback and yeah. that is not listed. So that maybe may I'm be, okay. You may be right. Yeah. So that one is, um, I'm trying to figure out. This is a pretty large one. So it's about a million vehicles. They, right. they actually just, dump the 573 on the NHTSA's website this morning. That was Toyota put that out in a news release around Christmas. Um, I guess to beat to beat the official announcement announcement from NHTSA. Um, but basically just like I was talking about with the airbags, there's an occupant classification system sensor that detects, you know, how big the person in the front seat is, how big the person in, you know, in is and where they're positioned in relation to the airbag. Um, and how much force the airbag can deploy with. And in these vehicles, the sensor's got a cracked capacitor and is inoperable in many cases and won't be able to report to the vehicle the occupant size for uh, airbag deployment. So you could see a situation where an airbag is deploying um, is aggressively in, in response to a crash when there's a small female or or even a child in the front seat. And that's not something we want. And that's why the occupant classification system sensor needs to work. All right. So get that checked out next week to see if you're in the recall. Is that what you're suggesting? I would when you hear about a recall, I would suggest, you know, waiting at least a couple of weeks to a month before verifying whether your VIN is is in the recall um just to be sure because there is a delay between the announcement of the recall and the time where that system's entered into the vin check system all right that's my second complaint against nitsa this episode come on that should be faster okay making me wait a month anyway let's go on to honda a rare entrant to the recall roundup uh potentially two and a half million vehicles 2018 to 2020 honda accords and 2018 to 2020 acura tlx's um, and Honda Civics and uh, yeah, it's a uh, Honda Clarity Fivs and CRVs and CRV hybrids and the Honda Fit and oh my word, the list goes on and on and on and I can't even get to the description. Okay, fuel pump issue. The fuel pump if the fuel pump impeller was improperly molded, resulting in low density impellers. Over time, the low density impeller can deform and interfere with the fuel pump body rendering the fuel pump inoperative. Oh, that's a, that's not good. I want my fuel pump to pump. Yeah, it's 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 a you know basically the the ultimate problem here is that if you don't have fuel pump working, you don't get gas to your engine and your engine can stop, stall in the middle of the road, um causing a crash or just putting you in a situation that's unsafe. So I believe you're going to since 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 we have a problem here with a with a with a low density impeller, the fix is going to be installing a uh, higher density impeller. And also, it looks like they're going to add some clearance between the impeller and the fuel pump body. So although they you know, they, they alluded to this being a manufacturing defect, it just has all of the markings of a design issue um, and it's that that's a big recall for for honda that's that's definitely hurts but it's obviously necessary well it could be both a design defect and a manufacturing problem but uh i you know when you qualify something properly you freeze the manufacturing process right and once you get it right you do everything that's required to make sure that you consistently get it right particularly when you're putting out high volume parts that have to last a really long time uh, 
the part of the uh, validation of this design might have been and should have been a testing and highly accelerated life test to make sure that this impeller would last for the life of the car. Uh, design standards should be set up so that things work until the expected life of the vehicle, until the expected life of whatever is being used, has been exceeded. Uh, there are ways to do these tests, and clearly Honda did not do that for this particular part. This is probably, once again, something that was provided by a supplier. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing on that, but it seems typical of something that would be provided by a supplier. And you have to flow down the right requirements to people if you expect them to do the right kind of manufacturing process. Well, if you got that Honda, go check it out. Get that fixed done. All right. The last one we have here is a little company called Tesla. <laughs> they don't have recalls. What are we talking about here? They just had one of two and a half million vehicles. Now they have one of 120,000 vehicles. This subject population includes all model year 2021 to 2023 model S and all model X vehicles between produced in 2021 to 2023. Certain date range for you Tesla freaks. No, mine was produced on the 17th of August. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Relax. Okay. Uh, the cabin door latch mechanism that does not comply with federal motor vehicle safety standard number 214, subparagraph 9.2.3b1, may increase the risk of injury during crash. So I'm going to crash and my side door pops open? Well, you, at least your latch, um, at least your door unlatches. Um, that's basically that they're violating FMVSS 214 here on latches and tesla discovered this supposedly during crash testing in early i mean this is a you know this is a quick recall process here they were doing routine validation side impact testing and their engineering department observed the cabin door unlatch after an impact on the other side of the vehicle and that's not compliant with FMVS 214. I believe this is another one where the OTA's already been released and the fix is in place. Um, so at this point, you should be able to hop in your Tesla and go down to Piggly Wiggly. Oh, well played, sir. Well played. Uh, hey, I love it. With with that, let's uh uh who is this comes out with and this is an auto news. Uh, Ford generated the most U.S. recalls for the third straight year. Oh, look at that, Ford. For a third year in a row, Ford Motor Company had the most recalls of any U.S. auto manufacturer, according to partial, partial NHTSA data. They issued 54 recalls, affecting nearly 5.7 million vehicles in the U.S. this year. Oh, but hey, on the bright side, that's down 21% from the number of recalls it issued in 2022. So hey, Ford, quality is, uh, you know, something uh, yeah but they've, hey, well, they've tried i mean they they, they continue to <laughs> recognize at least that they have a quality issue they've been doing that publicly for a, a little over a year now um but yes they're still leading the pack in recalls and you know from my perspective it's difficult to take the recall number and say hey this company's having a quality problem i wouldn't be able to say that if ford hadn't explicitly came out and said they had a quality issue um because it could just be a sign that a manufacturer is taking safety really seriously and recalling a lot of vehicles. You know, we see Mercedes sometimes do a lot of recalls with one, two, eight vehicles, that type of thing. And, you know, when you're just counting up the number of recalls in a year, it as far as insight into a company's quality issues, it doesn't always give you that. It may, it may give you a better insight into their safety culture than anything else. Hmm. Um, but... Anyway. You know, Chevy owners will often say that Ford stands for fix or repair daily. Hi, all. Well, that's, next... I know that's harsh, but <laughs> they know. also put really, really stupid stickers on their cars with Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen that as well. <laughs> yeah. But hey, this kind of matches data we're going to release next week. Start of the new year, we'll, we'll come up with the list of uh, the vehicles that are most complained about, that most complaints we got in 2023. 
because we have our own complaint database and it's like thousands of complaints have come in and uh you know ford tops that list multiple times yeah. and it's stuff so. that's not just safety related but could be um that's been going on for years we get a lot of complaints on melting dashboards and nissans for example and it sounds like a sticky you know, issue of something you wouldn't want, but it sounds cosmetic, but in fact, it actually causes some visibility problems out of the front window. So little things like that rise up a lot in our complaints when they happen to a lot of owners and those owners don't feel like they're being treated fairly. Hey, hey, listeners, uh, thank you so much for sticking with us. This is the end of another year. I hope you have good, happy holidays. I want to let you know that, you know, Listeners like you, you're not alone. We had over 10,000 downloads this month so far. We've had a, a total well over 100,000 downloads. And like, so you're part of this fun little auto safety nerd fun community. Um, we'll see you next year. And, and please, as I've said a thousand times on the show, please go to autosafety.org and click donate, donate, donate. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year. Happy yeah, holidays, happy, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.